Escape velocity. Chris, a couple of months ago, we had received an email from... What? Holy shit. We should print it out and put it up on the wall. No, this was from uh, a couple of documentary filmmakers based in California. And they were doing a crowdfunding campaign right. for their documentary called Cowspiracy, The Sustainability Secret. There's a couple guys named Kip and Keegan. Kip and Keegan. To me, it sounds like... Two guys from California. <laughs> yes. They had sent us uh, a link to the fundraiser. We just finished an episode and we didn't really have a chance to plug it. And I think we we felt like we maybe wanted to see more about the documentary before. Yeah, because we, we watched the trailer. Yeah. I think we were skeptical of the, the claim that they were making that they had some new bit of information mm-hmm. that was going to turn the issue of animal agriculture on its head yeah in terms of the environmental movement environmental movement yeah it was strongly implied you Strong, felt uh, there was yeah. a dramatic swell in you know kind of in the video and how they talked about it that you know you they actually say you may think that you know everything there is about this issue but what we will reveal to you in this documentary will shock you right and i think we thought our reaction was like maybe a slight eye roll I think we probably thought that was sort of an sort of an empty claim or perhaps overstated for the purposes of generating interest. Yeah. So the, the fundraiser was successful. They raised their money. They finished the edit of the film and they've had a premiere in San Francisco. The film is not out yet, but they did send us a uh, sort of a press screening copy mm-hmm. uh, for us to check out. So you and I sat down yesterday and watch this film, Cowspiracy, The Sustainability Secret. Do you think there should be any concern of us making this documentary? Of course. If you don't realize right now that you're putting your neck on the chopping block, you know, <clears throat> you, you better take that camera and throw it away. It's an environmental disaster that's being ignored by the very people who should be championing. Because they're, they're membership organizations, you know, a lot of them. They're looking to maximize the number of people making contributions. The leading cause of environmental degradation is... Um, we uh, need to address that as well. Hard to actually target, like, one thing. It's not up to the Department of Water Resources. It's hard to say what is a leading cause. You can answer that question in a few different ways. They do not want to address the primary driving Let's look at the fundamental problem here. There's suppression and mismanagement of information everywhere it abounds. I don't know that I would want to comment on that. Yeah, so to give a brief overview, this documentary follows Keegan, one of the filmmakers, through the process of finding out that animal agriculture is one of, if not the greatest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, land use, water use, other resource use, deforestation in the world. Yeah, it, it, compared to the usual suspects of fossil fuels, fossil fuels, tar sands. Yeah. He asked the question essentially, why isn't this the number one issue that major environmental organizations are focusing on? So, the film is partly him investigating that, ta- going getting interviews with these environmental organizations with you know, the local Californian Water Stewardship Council trying to find out if this is such a big contributor, which all the data says that it is, why isn't it the number one issue? And it's kind of joined with educating us through the film about what the details are of this resource use, land use, water use, greenhouse gas emissions. So it kind of dovetails these two things, him 
laying out the details of of the impact and then inquiring about why this isn't more well known by these environmental groups but the implication being that through the title cowspiracy that the reason for this is perhaps i think in the way that a lot of when you, when you don't really have the evidence to back up kind of a grand claim that there was a conspiracy you can't really say it but you kind of imply you know ask the questions why aren't these groups mm-hmm. talking about this yeah could it be that they're receiving funding we don't really know yeah which is a little bit of a tired technique uh, in order to ge- to generate perhaps but there's also pattern recognition it's a plausible theory that the organizations in the film did nothing to to counter yeah so he does talk to a bunch of these organizations um you know sierra club natural resources defense council greenpeace yeah try it makes kind of a big deal about trying to get an interview with greenpeace but they're unwilling to give him uh an interview and raises this question you know are you getting funding is is that a reason why aren't you talking about this issue and none of them they all seem fairly clueless when it comes to which is unbelievable mm-hmm. these are the people at the forefront of the environmental movement yeah and they're uncomfortable or or genuinely they don't have the information that even people like us might have mm-hmm. an inkling about what was the one you mentioned the natural defense natural resources defense council yeah it was shocking that she had never even heard of the un report mm-hmm. how do you not keep abreast of that kind of information in, in that line of work yeah yeah and i think that my intuition tells me that these organizations are so i mean they are in effect just businesses you know i mean they're nonprofit organizations but they are just so narrowly focused on whatever the issue that will generate the fundraising dollars is and i think you know he talks to michael pollan author of omnivore's dilemma yeah not necessarily somebody who's really a champion of veganism no but especially within the mainstream context someone who is far more he thinks about it yeah and he's very critical of industrial agriculture generally right you know he poses the question to him like why aren't these organizations talking about it and the answer is they've focus grouped it and it's a loser no one wants to have their environmental organization that that they've championed telling them that they're doing something wrong which this goes back to something we bring up again and again and again how veganism is the one thing where you actually have to fucking do something are you going to donate money to a group that you got involved with because they wanted to champion recycling or they wanted to clamp down on polluters and then they end up saying you know what uh, by the way you're concerned about pollution you're concerned about greenhouse gases you're concerned about deforestation the best thing you can do is completely withdraw your support from the primary industry that's driving all of these things and it means that you have to make a change in your life every single day you know which, no one's who's gonna, who's gonna which, which michael pollan's point is the 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 act of consuming industrial processed animal products is inextricably linked to people's sense of themselves and the same psychology applies to the people who are working at and running these organizations you know i mean you could probably count on one hand how many executives at you know all these groups put together are even vegetarian let alone vegan right they do look annoyed when he starts that line of questioning they're, they're yeah, like every they, single one of them because they know they know where he's going and they they want him they want the interview to end mm-hmm. he doesn't they don't want to talk about it yeah to me the, the you know it's sort of occam's razor it's that is the simplest explanation that would in the same way that like a people aren't not vegan because they've been bought off by the animal agriculture industry is because it is a deeply entrenched you know orthodoxy that that's of course we eat animals of course we eat dairy products Right, individual people, but the organ, the environmental organizations who who are to be at the forefront of stopping global catastrophe. Mm-hmm. I think it is it's a legitimate line of questioning as yeah. to wonder whether they're being funded by the very environmental destroyers that they would otherwise be against. Well, he, and it's not it's not without precedent in the larger scale either. Because one of the things I thought of when we were watching it is uh, from a couple of years ago, there was a, a few pieces that came out 
around this book that was published called Green Ink by Christine McDonald. Mm -hmm. And it was covering how a lot of these large environmental groups have taken a lot of donations from oil companies and chemical companies in order to get sort of stamps of approval for certain projects or for certain products. The organizations want the cash and they figure, well, for this one little thing, we can say that, yes, they're doing this one project in an eco-friendly way or whatever. And obviously that leads to uh, a relationship where you're thinking, oh, maybe I want to get that cash again down the road. Maybe mm. we shouldn't make them the focus of our major campaign. And it's interesting because the Sierra Club is one of the groups that uh, Keegan interviews in Cowspiracy. And I found this little quote from this article about, uh, about this book, Green Inc., that's about the Sierra Club. And it says, uh, the Sierra Club was approached in 2008 by the makers of Clorox Bleach who said that if the club endorsed their new range of green household cleaners, they would give it a percentage of the sales. The club's corporate accountability committee said the deal created a blatant conflict of interest, but it took the deal anyway. Executive Director Carl Pope defended the move in an email to members, in which he claimed that the organization had carried out a serious analysis of the cleaners to see if they were, quote, truly superior, but it hadn't. The club's toxics committee co-chair, Jessica Froman, said, we never approved the product line. Beyond asking a few questions, the committee had done nothing to confirm that the product line was greener than its competitors or good for the environment in any way. And the internal rationale is, well, they're going to make it anyways. Yeah. Someone's going to get that money. We might as well be us. Then we can do this good thing over here. Yeah. Which is the eternal fucking story of when someone offers you money, they fucking want something from you. Yeah, it's the slow, and it's then it's this slow chipping away of where your lines are, yeah. and well, what all of a sudden you find yourself ten years later, and how what percentage of your budget is coming from the companies who are committing the same practices that you're supposed to be criticizing? But that the, that fellow fucking punk bands is why you shouldn't play these fucking corporate festivals. You fucking sellout pieces of shit. Because now look at the fucking whole thing. You're just playing for a bunch of fucking companies now. Anyways, back to what we're talking about. But the interesting thing I also found in this piece about uh, that book, Green Inc., was that Greenpeace, which is an organization which they kind of imply strongly in the documentary that perhaps the reason they're not talking to them is because they have some of these corporate ties. But they actually come out really well in this piece. And they're specifically talking about this RED, R-E-D-D program for forest conservation, which has been very controversial, that groups like the Nature Conservancy and Conservation International have been big proponents of where, say, a forestry company will pay a certain amount in carbon offset by preserving one block of forest and then that is supposed to reduce overall carbon emissions, but it gives them credits to log elsewhere. And then they just log and the next forest over. It's mm-hmm. The whole thing ends up being actually a net negative in terms of in carbon emissions. It's just kind of a shell game. Mm-hmm. And Greenpeace you know, went down and investigated all this and came out against it. Mm-hmm. And I looked on SourceWatch's website, which is you know all about looking at funding sources for environmental organizations and all sorts of organizations. Where does their funding come from? How does it affect them? And, you know, they give an outline of Greenpeace's policies in terms of who they receive money from and how they vet their sources. And, you know, for the most part with, you know, there's many critiques to be made of Greenpeace, but they actually end up looking pretty good, you know, in terms of where their money comes from. And a huge majority, like they only take money from, individuals and foundations Mm -hmm. and there could be foundations that are kind of front groups for industry but the lion's share of all their money comes from individual donations so so it's back to the they don't want to upset their fan base mm -hmm. by uh, demanding they actually do something well and this is the kind of reason why paul watson was ousted you know after being a founder was ousted you know or slash left in the first place because here's someone who thinks we should focus on the true causes damn what is going to resonate with the donors you know we have to you know go hard so it's not totally without merit this uh this idea but i think that i felt like the film kind of over blew that angle in an effort 
to make a more dramatic, more compelling documentary, mm-hmm. you know, because it's hard. But also, it, it, a lot of this is ground that has been covered many times before. But if they're not going to give him the time of fucking day, then fucking they're going to get some speculation. So it's their own fucking fault for not talking to him. Just talk to the guy. I guess so. Answer yeah. his questions. Yeah. Then you're done. If you're an environmental group and a guy's making a movie about sustainability of fucking the world, talk to him for a minute. But that would be like saying if you were tired of doing interviews for propaganda and then some other website out of all the websites. he's tired of doing interviews on the environment, then yeah, maybe they should close their doors. <laughs> maybe propaganda should close their doors. Fuck, we often do. <laughs> but the other interesting aspect that was that was raised by someone else in the film was about the actual danger that some activists can come into when they do actually stand up against some of these industries the specific example was brazil yeah and how many activists have been killed in brazil when they're standing up against logging companies mining companies or the companies that are clearing the rainforest so cattle can so cattle can graze or so they can plant soybeans for 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 cattle. cattle this is a serious issue around the world actually and it's true that there has been this uptick you know in past decades where environmental activists are being killed by hired goons you know largely in countries where there's more of a history of paramilitaries and and you know government death squads and there was one piece that this was actually from a while ago but it was in the smithsonian magazine that was talking about this very issue of environmental activists being killed. And in this piece, they say that, uh, I'm quoting here, London-based rights group Global Witness says that more than 700 environmentalists were murdered in the decade that began in 2001, either because documentation of such crimes is more thorough in Brazil than elsewhere, or because its frontier is the most violent, or perhaps both, more than half of the global death toll was recorded within its borders. In any event, Brazil is considered the most dangerous country in which to work as an environmentalist today. And this is, of course, a country where you have the bulk of rainforest in the south and the bulk of deforestation going on. But again, another thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit is how they take that very real threat that activists face in the global south when protesting environmental degradation and slash and burn of their rainforests to these two guys in California making this documentary and they're implying a leap that perhaps the reason these major US corporate style environmental organizations aren't talking about this and perhaps the reason that they are getting stonewalled or that they have some funder pull out of the documentary midway through is because those same fears are felt in the US and that maybe they should be afraid as well which i felt was perhaps overly dramatic maybe it was dramatized for the purpose of making the film a little more more interesting more interesting yeah but it's also not unrealistic that that could be the case vested interests have often interfered in the lives of humans Mm -hmm. but there have been tried to get in their way but there have been dozens of documentaries made and books written about how the destructive nature of animal agriculture in the United States. Right. And and who's on the top of the FBI most wanted domestic terrorist lists. Yeah. Anyways. Yes, it's a little overblown, but fuck. Not that overblown. The but that's what that wasn't even the I mean, that is the least interesting part of the movie to me. I thought the most interesting stuff was basically the the crunching of the numbers. Yep. Which I'd like to see a critique of. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'd like to actually see where he sourced all those numbers. Yeah. The guy basically made a movie doing the math and confirming, I think, what we've been speculating about here in the basement for years about industrial animal agriculture versus so-called sustainable, organic, humane, happy mm-hmm. meat animal agriculture, that none of it is sustainable on a global level. Yep. That was one of the most interesting aspects I thought too, is that he doesn't go and visit these industrial animal facilities, which everybody's seen horrifying footage of. He goes to this organic 
quote unquote sustainable dairy farm and this grass fed family run fam- just, family run with their kids and everything these four white folks in their cowboy outfits and just shows like you know I think in that one family farm they're saying that they have one cow for every 10 acres of land and one pig for every five acres of land you know and just looking at the math of how as horrific as intensive animal agriculture is and all of the issues with you know environmental runoff and all the horrible cruelty which is layered on top of the fact that you're already killing the animals i think it's hard to argue that they're not far more efficient in terms of land use industry the industry yeah industrial animal there's a reason that it's happening and it's happening because there's this gigantic demand for meat and there's not enough land to graze all these animals that's why they're confined in these tiny stalls and dark barns yeah the, the the graphics in the movie are actually quite good yeah and the the where he was showing the raising of the mountains and the, and of all the national forests to create yeah and all the cities we'd have to chop down every down, city get rid of all the cities to make room for for all the organic pasture yeah so i thought that was i i was refreshing i think to see in a documentary like this because they you never see that you know if anything like i remember that that movie uh food inc yeah and they visit this one small organic farmer and they kind of hold him up as like that this is the champion of what food should be Yeah, with a banjo playing in the background or something yeah meanwhile you know he's just he's killing animals and he's using all this land and that like i almost hated they show all these industrial operations, but I almost hated that guy more than everybody else in that documentary. So I'm, I'm glad that they focused on that in this. And they also had a lot of focus on fishing, which is yeah. pretty rare as well. When you think about the movie a day later, he covered so much fucking ground. Yeah. Like he even got down to the, you know, wild horses being corralled. And, yeah. And like the wolf for, kills and, and, and ranchers being granted grazing land on public property all yeah. over the u.s destroying it yeah and, and and then killing all these wild horses in the process yeah mountain lions wolves yeah everything sacrificed yeah, for the coyotes. fucking ranchers yeah it was really what like i think it's worth it to see the documentary alone just to like kind of get this good synopsis of the environmental impact the land use focusing on these small operations focusing on fishing was was this one thing with the fishing they're saying 40 to 50 million sharks every year are killed in fishing dragnets right and that's these these fishing dragnets are actually like when you buy quote-unquote sustainable fish right that's what they're using because they're not they're not dredging the bottom right they're like pulling these giant nets but that's 40 to 50 million sharks a year. That was fucking insane. And I thought it was, when they were showing that computer graphic of the net going through the ocean, I thought it was a joke when the whale went in, but apparently... Yeah, whale, those nets whales, are so gigantic. So whales yeah. are part of the the quote-unquote buy-kill yeah. of getting these sustainable fish for fucking assholes in Winnipeg to eat. Yeah, this one guy, they interview Richard Oppenlander. He had a couple good quotes. One of them was... He's talking about overfishing and he says, overfishing or what I like to call fishing. <laughs> and uh, and he said that the best way to save sharks is to ban fishing. He's talking about uh, industrial, industrial fishing, yeah. obviously. Yeah, it was pretty wild. And the other thing that I, that I kept coming back to while we were watching this, when he's talking about, you know, having to cover the continental U.S. with, with you know, grazing land, raise all the cities and national parks and everything, and talking about the ranchers triggering these wild animal kills to, to protect their operations i kept bringing it back to colonialism mm-hmm. it's like here's here's the land this is this is what we have done with it this is a whole system of using 50 or 55 percent of all land in the united states is used for animal agriculture that's crazy Can either we- either grazing the animals or growing feed to feed those animals yeah you know and this is this is what we have done with it what was it earlier in the documentary? They're saying that 200 years ago or something, the ratio of the biomass yeah, right. of the planet. We were 1%. We were we were one or humans, humans were one or 2%. And then the other 98% was wild animals. Yeah. And now humans and the animals that we have specifically domesticated, domesticated that we own or have raised comprise 98% of the biomass and only 2% of the biomass of the planet is wild animals. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. I, I'm sure listeners are thinking this movie appealed to Chris and Derek because they are vegan and this 
this movie plays into our values, mm-hmm. but it mostly plays into data. The data on yeah. what is just what is the primary? Yeah, what 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 is to be done now? The answer is going to be that we stop industrial animal agriculture. Yep. and replace it with mostly plant based food systems mm-hmm. or so-called lab meat that is less resource intensive and and everyone's gonna have to shut up and say Chris and Derek were right all the time our favorite outcome yeah and the saddest outcome in the world (laughs) the saddest outcome in the world is that the world will have to say those two guys (laughs) sitting in the basement were almost always right so Cowspiracy Cowspiracy Cowspiracy.com go watch it where do you get it? Cowspiracy.com. I don't think you can watch it there yet. It's not like officially out, but oh. keep an eye peeled. Derek, we have an interview guest on the show. Yeah, you know, sometimes I'm not sure, I'm not totally positive how much I can take for granted about what our listeners might think about the world or already understand about the world, yeah. what, what their intuitions or, or experiences might be. So there's sometimes when I think about a particular guest or topic that I feel would be possibly even, I wouldn't be super stimulated by thinking about listening to an interview mm-hmm. with or on a particular topic because I think, well, it's gonna, just going to rehash stuff I already, like you know, not because I'm not interested in it or I don't like it, but just because it might just be more of the same in terms of what information I'm feeding myself. But I think my assumptions are probably always wrong about what people know or want to need hear? to hear. Need to hear. Want to hear or need to well, hear. Well, need to hear is different than want to hear. People it's true. want to hear us uh, talk review more movies. They want more movies and me talk about propaganda. That's right. <laughs> but what they need to hear is what we need to hear. Yeah, and I think also sometimes even if you think like, yeah, I know all that stuff, it's good. It's good to remind yourself. It's good to kind of retread that ground. Yep. Um, and especially when you're getting perspective from people who have spent a lot of time. In some cases, like in this case, decades, thinking about this stuff, pioneering, in fact research and and analysis of a particular area so that was these are some of the things that were going through my mind when i thought about the guest that we have on her name is jean kilborn mm-hmm. and i had initially become familiar with her work i think because you years ago now you had mentioned that uh helena had brought home a copy of this docu well, it's not really a documentary but sort of a a value-added lecture uh that she had put out with the Media Education Foundation yep. called Killing Us Softly. Yes. Advertising's image of women. Helena made me watch it. She sat you down. She said, Shut your fucking mouth. Watch this. This is what I'm talking about all the time. You pathetic excuse for a man. You're a piece of shit. So I watched it. So you watched it and, and you said it was... Uh, I found it... Heavy? Yeah. Impactful? Yes. And, and, and not... Nothing totally surprising, having, right. but it, it just a, a a veil lifted to mm-hmm. see things clearer. This is a series. She's actually had uh, four versions of this now. She kind of updates it periodically. With uh, it's kind of her giving this talk that she gives all around the world, and it is supplemented with uh, some video clips, some imagery that she's talking about. You know, and it's just a very digestible forty-five minute. It'll be so I'd actually never seen it. You talked about it and I'd watched a couple clips or whatever, but I decided I should actually watch the whole thing, Yeah, uh, which I did. And I thought it would be really cool to talk to her and, and kind of get her to break it down yeah. a little more for us. Um, Give us an interim report. So who is Jean? I guess I'm just talking about her, but we're not, we haven't even said anything about that's true who she is and what her history is. So she has been internationally recognized, Chris, for her groundbreaking work on the image of women in advertising and for her critical studies of alcohol and tobacco advertising. This is back in the late 60s that she started 
exploring these connections uh, between advertising and several public health issues. So she was talking about violence against women, eating disorders and addiction. And she kind of launched a movement to promote media literacy as a way to prevent these very problems. Jean's films, lectures, and television appearances have been seen by millions of people throughout the world, and she was named one of the three most popular speakers on college campuses by the New York Times Magazine. So in addition to the renowned film series, Killing Us Softly, that we were talking about, uh, she's also the author of a couple books, one of them being Can't Buy Me Love, How Advertising Changes the Way We Think and Feel, and So Sexy, So Soon, The New Sexualized Childhood and what parents can do to protect their kids. So I called Jean up the other day and talked to her about some of these issues. Let's hear it. Jean Kilborn, thanks for joining us today on Escape Velocity Radio. My pleasure. I'm happy to be with you. So, Jean, you've spent over four decades now uh, tracking the representation of women in advertising, and I'm curious how you would characterize how women are depicted in the current media climate and how that has changed since you started this work in the 1970s. Well, it hasn't changed nearly enough, that's for sure. And people often ask me, you know, have things gotten any better? And in many ways, things have gotten much worse. And a lot of the things that I started talking about really 40 years ago, um, such as the obsession with thinness or the emphasis on the ideal image of beauty or the sexualization of children or, or violence against women, all of those things have gotten much, much worse. The biggest change is that I'm no longer alone, that when I started talking about this, I was the first person to look at the image of women in advertising, to take it seriously, and I had to convince people that this was an issue and that uh, this was, in fact, something that needed to be looked at and taken seriously, and now, of course, that I don't need to do that anymore. So the ideas that were considered really radical uh, when I first expressed them, you know, 40-odd years ago, are now quite mainstream. So what would some of those ideas be? What would you say are the, the key points that really trouble you in terms of this representation of women in advertising in the media? Well, I think the main point um, was that I felt that the objectification of women, that showing women as objects and as things, created a climate in which violence and abuse became more likely, so that the objectification of women was quite directly related to violence against women. And this sounds like, yeah, of course, now, but nobody else was saying that, you know, 40 years ago, and I got a lot of resistance to that idea. You know, no, that's not true. I mean, the images are, are stupid and trivial. They don't have any real impact. And, you know, I think now there's been research, of course, that has demonstrated that turning people into objects, in fact, does uh, set them up for violence. I'm not saying at all that an ad, you know, directly causes violence or anything that simple, but that when you are surrounded by images of women as things and as objects, it normalizes looking at women in this way, and that in turn makes it more likely that a woman will be the victim of violence or abuse. Because I think it's very, it's very difficult to be violent to someone you consider an equal human being, but it's very easy to abuse a thing. So I think most people's intuition would tell them that being bombarded by these kinds of images can't be a good thing. But that's one of the things I really appreciate about your work is that you've gone into the actual research around the effects of advertising on women. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit what some of the research has shown in terms of uh, the impact on how women feel about themselves and how they, they go about traversing the world. It's quite difficult to do this kind of research because... It's very difficult to get comparison groups. You know, the gold standard of research is you have a, a control group that isn't exposed. And, of course, it's virtually impossible to find a group these days that isn't or hasn't been exposed to massive doses of advertising. So it's, it's difficult to do, but some research has been done. And most interestingly, I think a, a few years ago, the American Psychological Association uh, put together a task force on the sexualization of girls, and they did a, a meta-analysis of the research. So they looked at all the research that had been done, and they came to the conclusion that girls who are exposed to sexualized images from a young age are more prone to the 
three most common mental health problems for women, which are eating disorders, low self-esteem, and depression. So although the images are often trivial, their, their impact is, is very harmful, and there now is research that actually backs that up. Now, as for how these images affect men, let's say, there hasn't been nearly enough research done on that topic, but my theory is that men are affected, let's say, by the sexualized images of girls, partly because they're encouraged to look at girls in this way and to see girls as objects and to, um, and that also there's tremendous pressure on men to be um, performers, you know, to always be sexually interested, always to be sexually active and to um, be sort of like porn stars or something in bed. So there's a lot of pressure on men too, although it's very different from the kind of pressure that there is on girls and women. Yeah, I was going to say I can almost hear the defensive men in our audience, which, you know, to be honest, is mostly men saying, you know, what about men? Men are objectified, too. Is there any truth to that? Like, are men objectified in advertising? And do men face these same impossible beauty standards? Well, men are men are certainly objectified more than they ever used to be, um, and there's more pressure on men to, you know, to look young and to, you know, that sort of thing. However, it's it, it's entirely different from the pressure on women. It, first of all, for women, get the message that this is the most important thing. That what's most important is how we look, and that our value depends on our attractiveness to men, basically. Whereas men have other avenues to power. You know, in fact, as men grow older how they look doesn't really matter so much anymore. Then what matters is how much money they have, which is in itself a very difficult kind of thing, but it's very different from being judged, you know, by how you look. I mean, we all know that rich, unattractive old men or rich, unattractive young rock stars, for that matter, can have lots of beautiful young women. Whereas for women, it never changes. The emphasis is always on how we look no matter what else we do. All you need to do to see how true that is is look at the coverage of female political candidates and the, you know, the relentless emphasis on their clothing and their hairstyle and how they look, and that just isn't done to men. So in that sense, uh, there's a world of difference. In another way, the, the ideal image for of beauty for women is extremely artificial. I mean, there's nothing natural about it at all. It has to do with uh, women who, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, looking as if they're 35, and that's done, you know, through Photoshop primarily, um, having incredibly smooth skin. In in a way, the face, the ideal face of beauty for women is kind of like a cartoon. It's it's very smooth. There are no, no, no lines, no blemishes, no nothing. Whereas for men, it's very different. Men are, you know, considered attractive with their scruffy beards and, you know, lines on, around their eyes and that kind of thing. I mean, think of Brad Pitt, for example, who's still considered very attractive but you know can look kind of rough hewn in a way and that's fine now there's another way in which the objectification is different and that is that there really aren't consequences for men as a result of being objectified so men's bodies for example are getting they're being used more often to sell products and they're they're made to look you know men are, are ripped and powerful and and big and muscular and that kind of thing. So when men are objectified, they're always made bigger, more powerful. When women are objectified, they're always made smaller, frailer, thinner, less powerful. But more important, there really aren't aren't consequences in that men don't live in a world in which they're likely to be raped or harassed or beaten, whereas or at least straight white men don't live in such a world, whereas women and girls do. So that when women are objectified, there's always the threat of violence. There's always the the threat of sexual intimidation. And women and girls live in a world defined by this threat, whereas men just simply do not. So although objectification is harmful for everybody, it's not. I'm not advocating that it's okay for men to be objectified, but there's a world of difference when men are objectified than when women are objectified. Can we talk about child beauty pageants for a second? Like, is it just me or is this kind of the most demented and disturbing outgrowth of, uh, of our culture's obsession with beauty and the sexualization of, of absolutely everything? Have you done a lot of like looking into uh, that, the strange I, culture? I have actually. Yeah, my latest book is, um, was called So Sexy, So Soon, The New Sexualized Childhood and What Parents Can Do to Protect Their Kids. And uh, it's about how this sexualization 
um, of girls in particular start so young now. So, and child beauty pageants are certainly a perfect example of that, as are TV shows like Toddlers and Tiaras and that kind of thing. But the, the, the beauty pageants, the idea of three- and four-year-old girls being, you know, outfitted with cap teeth and contact lenses and sprayed tans, and it's just demented is a very good word for it. I mean, it's really horrifying. And I know that there are a whole lot of people who think this is cute somehow, but if they understood that the research is clear, as I mentioned earlier, that, that doing this to girls really harms them, maybe they would think it was less cute. So in your Killing Us Softly series uh, and in your lectures, a lot of the examples that you show are from print advertising. Uh, but, you know, print magazines are dying and even television commercials, you know, which you note constitute about two years of the average TV viewer's life, which is pretty crazy in and of itself. Um, mm-hmm. Even those are becoming obsolete now with DVRs and streaming services. So it seems that gender representation and gender roles in TV and movies are probably the greatest cultural influence these days. And I'm curious uh, how much tracking or analysis you've done in that regard. I've done some, and, and not just in TV and movies, but also in uh, on the internet. Let's say there's a, you know a huge amount of not just advertising, but also gender role stuff that goes on on the internet, including a whole lot of people objectifying themselves. And then there's video games and you know the music videos and all of the other ways in which we get these messages. So it's true that I mean magazines are less important than that TV commercials people can skip by. But the reason I've always used print ads is that they take they don't take up a lot of time you know to explain and. What I'm really doing is using them as examples of themes so that my theme, let's say, would be the ideal image of beauty that women have to look absolutely perfect. They can't have pores, you know, they can't have lines, etc. And I might use a, a, a print ad to illustrate that, but I would hope that people would know that that's going to be the same, you know, in a movie or a TV show or a video game, that the woman is going to, is going to be presented that way. And the same is true with um, the extraordinarily thin models, for example. I mean, I would use a print ad just to show that as a kind of shorthand, really. But obviously, the fact that we're surrounded by celebrities who are incredibly thin and TV stars and you know that, that sort of thing, that's, that's a huge part of it, too. So the, the cultural environment is everything you know that's out there. Um, magazines, of course, which, as you say so correctly, are, are less important than they used to be. Television, um, the Internet, most important of all video games, music videos, TV shows, all of that stuff um, constitutes a sort of cultural environment that teaches us about what what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be hot and sexy. So this might be a little more philosophical, but I'm just wondering how we got to this point that seems so extreme. You know, I think a lot of people have noted that throughout history, there's been you know, the definition of beauty has been fluid and variable. Um, but it seems like we're in this time where, you know, the, the roles are very rigid, maybe a little less so now than 40, 50 years ago. But what is it, what's happening psychologically or otherwise that's driving us to these extreme, unrealistic standards? Where are they coming from in the first place? Well, I think that, I mean, it, as always, you follow the money. I mean, it's really, it's really mostly about profit, and it's about uh, trying to sell a huge, a huge a lot of products. And one of the best ways to sell products is to make people anxious about something and then offer the product as a way to, you know, ease that anxiety, either consciously or unconsciously. So that all of these, um, the ideal image of beauty for women, for example, supports a multi-billion-dollar fashion industry, beauty industry, makeup industry, all of that. And most of the products are, uh, let's take the anti-aging products, for example, they're, they're ridiculous. They're sort of like the diet products. I mean, none of them work. None of them really make any difference. But if you get people anxious enough and you get people tr- feeling that their value depends upon um, all of this, then they're going to spend a whole lot of money. And men are made to feel anxious about not being manly enough or powerful enough. Or, and so they're, they're particularly targeted with products that are going to make them look as if they have status, you know, the car, the sometimes the cologne or the uh, various things that are going to try to um, enhance their masculinity. But that's done more for men via their watches or what they own or what they can purchase rather than products that they apply to themselves. It's all about money. It's all about marketing. It's all about uh, 
you know, profit. And it's all about the fact that at its core, advertising really depends on uh, get, making people feel anxious and insecure, for the most part, most advertising, making people feel anxious and insecure and then offering them the product as the solution. Yeah, shopping is the solution to, to any problem that exists. Exactly, right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's even what you know. George W. Bush urged Americans to do after nine eleven: go shopping. <laughs> go shopping. Yeah, go shopping. So I've noticed in in some of the dialogue uh, that has come up after you know some of these high profile cases that involve you know some some obviously misogynistic goings on, like the Steubenville, Ohio, uh, rape case, or even the uh, the recent Elliot Rogers shooting. Mm -hmm. spree where he had this incredibly misogynistic video that he posted beforehand people have been talking about this idea of rape culture and it seems like it's a relatively new term and it's controversial with a lot of people and i was curious what your take was on using this term rape culture to describe the dominant environment that we're in right now I think it's very accurate, and it's actually not a new term at all. It's been around for 40, 50 years. In fact, there's a, an old film that was made by the uh, company that made the original version of Killing Us Softly called Rape Culture, and that's like 40 years old, 45 years old. So it's something that we've been talking about for a long time, but it's lately sort of caught on, and I think part of the reason is because of all the publicity about the, you know, these mass murders and also um, the attention that's being paid now on sexual assault on college campuses. So um, people are beginning to understand that or recognize this term. And I think, it's, I think it's a useful term, I mean, as long as people really understand what it means, and which is that, you know, we, ha- we live in a c- cultural environment, which I consider, I call a toxic cultural environment, that normalizes rape or it normalizes the attitudes that lead to rape and sexual assault. I mean, it normalizes the idea that women are objects, that women are um, there for the pleasure of men, that real men are very aggressive, that real men um, are always um, wanting sex and feel entitled to it. I mean, all of this is normalized by the culture, and it's normalized in, you know, all the things we've talked about, um, you know, the porn and the um, video games and music videos and TV shows and movies and, every, and advertising, all of it. It normalizes these attitudes, which then creates a climate in which, in which sexual assault and rape becomes more likely, because, again, it's seen as somehow, as seen, as somehow normal, as if somehow this is, this is just the way things are, that we can't really do anything about this. And it also makes it more likely that women are going to be blamed. You know, women are, girls get the message that they need to be very hot and sexy, that they need to be beautiful, that they need to attract a lot of boys. And yet, if they are the victims of, of rape or sexual assault, they're then blamed for being seductive or too hot or too sexy or for being dressed a certain way. So girls really can't win. They're in a very impossible kind of double bind. So you mentioned porn there, and I wanted to ask you about, you know, because you've talked about how porn has changed over time, uh, how it's so prevalent now. And I was wondering if you could discuss, you know, what you see the impact, especially on young people being there with the wide availability of porn on the Internet and also kind of decouple for us, you know, a critique of porn in terms of representation from a critique of porn that some people might consider, you know, puritanical or or anti-sex, you might say. Right, that's always that's so tricky. But I mean, the, the, one of the huge things that's happened in the past decade, let's say, has been uh, the fact that porn has become so mainstream that it, it wasn't that long ago that you had to go to a you know CD bookstore in a in a bad part of town in order to get. Uh, porn, or you had to ask for a magazine wrapped in plastic behind a counter. I mean, that, that sounds like ancient history, but it wasn't that long ago. But now, of course, porn is not only um, accessible, it's really kind of inescapable, so that kids, for example, stumble upon it even if they're not looking for it. And, of course, many kids are looking for it. But I would argue that today, especially in the U.S., where we basically have no sex education or, or the sex education we have is mostly lies, uh, that most kids are are learning about sex from porn and that's really disturbing because most of the porn that one sees online is 
brutal and violent and misogynistic. Now, when I say that, people always think, oh, that's not true. I mean, some there's extreme stuff, but most of it is just, you know, sex. That's really not true. I mean, there's been content analyses done of porn online, and the majority of it is really very brutal and violent. And it has to constantly get more brutal and violent because people get desensitized to it. They get bored. They want something new. So it goes from a woman having sex with two men, for example, and, and uh, two more extreme things that then become normalized and become sort of the center. So that, that happens for one thing. So it's a very misogynistic attitude towards sex that's presented in porn. It's certainly not anything that has anything to do with sexual pleasure for women. It's just not about that at all. Um, and yet if kids are learning about porn from this, then they're learning all kinds of really harmful ideas. I mean, they're, not, they're learning very wrong ideas, for example, about how orgasm occurs for women uh, or what women like. You know, And I'm not saying that I can speak for all women and women like a whole range of things, but you know, a lot of the, um, the emphasis in porn is on stuff that, that is not that appealing to most women. And girls learn that they have to um, react in a certain way. Um, the, the vast majority of young women these days completely remove their pubic hair, for example, which comes completely from the world of porn. So, and, and boys, you know, learn that what they think girls like, and everybody learns that sex, you know, can take place in a couple of minutes and be of great pleasure to women, which is really not true. Um, so it's just there are te- assortment of terrible messages that um, kids are getting about sex. So that's one thing that, that porn does. And that's why, I mean, it's so frustrating when one talks about this and then gets labeled sort of puritanical or anti-sex, because I actually think we don't need less discussion about sex. You know, certainly in um, in my country, we need more. You know, we need more honest talk about about sex and what sex is really like. And we need much better sex education. We need accurate, honest sex education that starts early on, as it does in most developed countries. And and so it isn't. Porn is not really that much about sex. It's about power. It's about domination. It's about sort of stereotypes, very crude stereotypes of sex and sexuality that don't really have that much to do with what sex is really like for most people. So I would like, you know, to have, as I said, much more discussion and even more depictions of that, more more erotica, that's fine with me, or more uh, honest uh, sort of portrayals of, of sex and sexuality in films and and even on TV shows. I mean, all of that is is fine with me. It's just that the attitudes that are expressed through porn are, in, in my way of thinking, anti-erotic and really in a way sort of anti-sex. So despite all this, despite this sort of toxic environment that you describe, it does kind of feel like in the last few years, there's been some growth in the public conversation around women's representation in media, around violence against women, you know, a discussion of rape culture. And even looking at, you know, say a TV show like Girls, which despite numerous flaws, is written by women and portrays some women in perhaps more real and honest fashion. So I'm wondering if mm-hmm. you think that that is an accurate perception and if these various threads point to there being some hope for progress. Yes, I mean, I think definitely. And and there's been a whole lot more, well, as you say, much more discussion about the representation, much more discussion uh, about a whole lot of things. I mean, one of the most hopeful things that's happened in recent years, to my mind, has been the um, increasing acceptance of, of gay rights. I mean, that's just astonishing, really, how fast that has turned around. And some of that has to do with the culture. I mean, to give credit, some credit to the culture, I mean, as people see more depictions of um, gay couples in in TV shows or movies and that kind of thing without it being necessarily such a big deal. And then as people, of course, get to know gay people in their in their lives, attitudes change and the attitudes for for young people are have changed so dramatically that this is not going to be an issue at all before too long but that's to me gives me a lot of hope that there's been that kind of progress really very quickly and there's it's also hopeful that there's been so much um yeah so much more discussion i mean for me after doing this for 40 years it's it's very uh hopeful that there are so many organizations and 
groups and protests and people doing things that would have been sort of unthinkable before. And countries passing legislation uh, against Photoshop, for example, or requiring that models be above a certain body mass index. I mean, things that wouldn't have been imaginable before. A couple of years ago, I showed Killing Us Softly for the latest version of my film um, at Parliament in London, you know, because a wonderful MP there was introducing some legislation. And if anybody had told me when I was starting out, you know, that I would be, you know, talking about this at Parliament, I, that I would not have believed. So there has, I think there is, I'm an optimist by nature, and I think we do have some reason for hope. So what do you hope we'd take away from all this? Like, What's our homework in dealing with how uh, advertising and the media shapes how we view and even how we treat each other? Well, I think, first of all, <clears throat> is to become conscious of it. We all believe that we're not affected by this stuff. I mean, that's just a kind of basic belief. And, and, and the advertisers love that we believe that because as long as we believe that, we're not on guard. You know, everything gets beneath our radar. All of this stuff is meant to affect us emotionally and mostly subconsciously. So it does its work while we're saying, oh, this is stupid and trivial and it doesn't influence me. Or, or what I hear more than anything else, I don't look at ads, I don't pay attention to them, I just turn them out. And it's true. I mean, most people do, but that doesn't mean that we're not affected by them. So the first step is, with any problem is to face it in order to become conscious of it and to become aware of the, the consequences and, and how they affect, if not oneself, then people one loves, you know, at least. Uh, or how they affect children. I mean, most people can care about that. So that's important. And then I think it's important to um, get involved in whatever way moves people to bring about change in the attitudes. And that can be things like supporting some of the organizations that have come up. I have an extensive resource list on my website, uh, com, and there's tons of organizations now that are working on these issues, everything from media literacy to public health prevention to lots of different things. So whatever one's interest is, there are ways to get involved. And then have a lot of conversations. You know, I think that's important, too. What we we need to do with all of these issues is to make these things conscious and the best one of the best ways to do that is just to talk about it you know talk about it with your friends talk about it with your lovers with your family members you know sort of what do you think about this and what do you think about that show we saw last night or you know all just to make it conscious bring it out in the open and, and talk about it well thanks very much gene i really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today about this stuff my pleasure those were great questions it was a wonderful to have the conversation with you derek thanks what can really be said after such an interview everything that needs to be said she just said it really what do you have to say something oh you want to get the last word in fucking man I do think that what she had to say about the role pornography is playing in the developing of sexual identity in young people is, pro I, I think that's maybe the most weird and troublesome because I think it could be, though I don't have any data to back this up, but it could be making a more fundamental change in how people are relating to each other sexually in subsequent generations and probably not in a good way yeah an edification of rape culture because mm -hmm. it's already something to a degree that when kids start getting interested in it they don't want to necessarily talk their fucking dad about it mm -hmm. even though dad has so much to tell them <laughs> even though dad has so much experience but there were a few things where I thought there might have been some assumption of self-evident facts, but I'm not totally like she kind of leads off, you know, in the same way she kind of leads off her lectures with, unfortunately, it hasn't really gotten better. And in many ways, it's gotten worse, mm -hmm. which is a hard thing to actually quantify because there's so many things at play, whereas like we're so everybody is so hyper aware of everything that happens now with the instant, the instant explosion of anything that happens any incredibly offensive ad or media campaign or representation or comment or event or anything, everybody hears about it instantly, you know, whereas before so much stuff would just get buried. And the fact that everybody's hearing about it is leading people to actually talk about it. And it seems like a resurgence of an issue of talking about rape culture, talking about women in media, talking about how these representations can shape our relationships in the real world. And, you know, there's also a lot of research that 
strongly suggests that incidents of rape, violence against women, definitely like domestic partner homicide, these are all going down as percentages of the population. Rates are going, some of them are harder. Rape is a lot harder because there's so many subjective things. Unreported. Unreported and young people's changing definition of what they consider to be rape as well. So I read a bit about this, you know, all these kind of competing studies about what the statistics are and it's really hard to get a handle on what what is actually happening. I think I'm more of a glass half empty kind of guy. I, I think things are worse. Feminism is so, it's such a fucking bad word in our culture these mm-hmm. days. Yeah, there's a backlash. Yeah, there's a backlash. And that's, I mean, feminism is the primary vehicle for undoing what has been done. Things but don't are- those backlashes usually come at the point where the the dominant paradigm starts to feel an actual threat that's when those come because they think like wait a minute now now things are going too far oh now you're talking about rape culture now you're saying that this is our problem actually now you're saying feminism it's not a woman's thing but it's actually a man's issue because we have to change what we're doing well what this is some bullshit now it's just the tables have gone the other direction and you have all these right you know men's rights groups or whatever right you could interpret that as a positive sign because it means that the pushback is coming from the from the progress maybe yeah maybe i don't fucking know i'm just glad i have two sons instead of two daughters which is a fucked up thing to think you have way more work cut up for you because you have two boys because you have the job of making sure that they turn into men who are not assholes no no that's helena's job I make sure they know how to have fun. If the 93% of men who listened to what Gene Kilborn had to say today wanted to learn more, where would they go to find out about it? They could visit her website at genekilborn.com. And we will also put a link to that in the show notes as per Derek, it looks like we got some feedback from the last episode. I was going to say that. You're stealing my words. Plagiarist. The feedback I generally saw was that people were like, oh, yeah, yeah, you guys are right. This isn't that big of a deal. You're referring, of course, to the the Chris Hedges plagiarism piece we did last episode. We felt we we were asking people to to chime in and tell us why this was such a big deal. Yeah. It seemed like much ado about very little to us. And I think our little brainstorm about it seem to elicit similar responses from some of our listenership Mm -hmm. save for one melissa martin yeah that's right a writer no less an actual writer yeah in our listenership someone who is paid to write things that is amazing yeah and she's a good writer yes as people will soon hear in their ears fellow winnipegger fellow winnipegger yeah she sent us an email that gave us some pause, made us think a little more, or gave us some perspective on why... A different perspective. Yeah. One that, one that I had not... It had not occurred to me, and a perspective that I had not heard or read anywhere before, strangely enough. Let's just let's just get right, in, right into it, and then totally debunk it. She goes into uh, a lot of depth here, but I'll try to tease out a couple of the, uh, the more salient paragraphs that really get to the point. Here's what she says. There's a thing that happens in this industry after particularly talented journalists rise to the top. They often make a transition into becoming as much public curators rather than public intellectuals. They start doing more speaking and media appearances. They're on the ground far less, if at all. They have more commissions than time. They have more money than time. They have more ability to hire assistants to help with research And they have, by this point, a fairly good system for churning out enormous amounts of apparently intelligent content while under these time constraints. They become closer to an intellectual brand than a working journalist, sometimes, and the power of this is that they can wrap their own skin around other people's frameworks, put a byline on it, and sell it anywhere, because they have a powerful draw. I suspect that's what's happened at least somewhat with Hedges. I do believe his worst crime here is laziness, inflated by arrogance, but that matters. Because the way this process unfolds tends to replicate existing power and privilege hierarchies in North America, 
often falling along race, gender, and class lines. And it's very frustrating for journalists to experience themselves as basically being feeders for larger, more influential people. This is where it taps into the real undercurrent of frustration that many people have with big name public intellectuals that participate in this kind of column work. Even when they don't outright plagiarize, they often stand on other people's shoulders to stay up in the sun. By doing so, they cement their reputation as foremost public intellectuals and obtain the attendant rewards that offers in an industry in which it is very difficult to gain any sort of career comfort. And they do it basically by taking the work of other writers, particularly ones who are lesser known or lesser paid, and repackaging it in a way that obscures or minimizes that journalist's efforts and ownership of the work, and thus reduces the amount of benefit they'll receive from this use of their work. Basically, my issue with Hedges is that he's clearly lifted stuff lazily, even if it's not outright plagiarism. And I doubt that the ones referenced in The New Republic are the only such instances. This isn't unusual for a man of his position and renown, and I don't think he's awful for it. However, it is incredibly disappointing and frankly disillusioning when writers, especially those on the left who should theoretically both know and care better, do not invest the time and care into leveling the playing field for journalists, but rather uncritically allow their own status to obscure and erase the true provenance of other journalists' work. I think that all sounds very interesting and reasonable. It's reasonable. To me, yeah. It's sort of bridging the gap between the people who are pretending that this is the end of Chris Hedges and people like us who thought it doesn't matter at all. Right. Doesn't throw the proverbial infant out with the toilet water, but at the same time doesn't let Chris Hedges off the hook. Kudos to Melissa for sending some excellent feedback on that topic. Well, I think that's the end of the episode. That's a lot of good stuff in there, wasn't there? Was I, did I even say anything one time or did you just talk the whole time? I think that I'm monopolizing the conversation and it's because of the gender disparity between us. Thanks for tuning in for episode 22 of Escape Velocity Radio. To read show notes, join the discussion or listen to our archives, visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com. If you like the show and we know that you don't, and you want to support us, which we know that you don't want to do, please leave us a review on iTunes or make a donation via the donate link on our website. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud by searching for, and I quote, Escape Velocity Radio, close quotes, or you can send us feedback via email at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com. See you later, motherfucker! Ah! 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 Ah